This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Nate. How's it going? I'm good. How are you doing, Andrew? Good. Ron, how are you today? I'm on lockdown, as I'm sure everywhere else they're discouraging actually going anywhere. So I got snacks, so I'm good. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. So welcome to the Ruby Blend. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Gatsby, some front-end JavaScript static site generation, and maybe a little bit about testing frameworks. So that sounds awesome. Before we go anywhere, how's Corona been for y'all? How's the lockdown and family safe and hopefully? We're safe over here. Biggest change for us has been just kind of adjusting to remote school. Ah. We, we were pretty fortunate in the, all of our, like our school district. I've got a kid in high school and one in middle school. And they already had devices. So my middle schooler has an iPad and my high schooler has a computer that were issued by the schools. From that side of it, we were pretty much ready. They're using Canvas to send out assignments and stuff like that. So they were kind of prepared for it, but it's still an adjustment. I mean, I'm getting about 30 emails a day from the school district and different teachers as everybody kind of tries to settle into coordinating everything. And we know how you like emails. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're okay over here. They finally shut down all the beaches. It's only a problem for the tourists, really, because Floridians don't go to the beach. Yeah, like up till you know this weekend, there were tourists still out at all the beaches getting their spring break on. So, but yeah, other than that, I mean, I think it's fairly normal, I guess. One thing we've had to adjust to, my wife's job, they're all remote now, but they weren't as prepared to, uh, Nate's kids school and so they were scrambling trying to put like Slack and Trello together because they don't use those tools like in general so they're having some like serious growing pains as trying to move over to a remote and they're kind of suffering from a little bit of a what do you call it micromanagement syndrome (laughs) because they you know not being in the office they don't know where you know what everybody's doing and so I Feel like they're overcompensating about like how often you need to check in on Slack and you know Trello cards and all of that. So I imagine that's just not schools either. That's a lot of companies that are transitioning to remote that have never. I mean, they're not used to managing people remotely and really trusting their people, and so it's kind of like this forced trust that's being pushed on all these companies. Exactly. What about you, Andrew? How you? Uh, how are you faring? The apocalypse. My life honestly has not really changed all that much. I mean, I already work from home. I'm already pretty introverted to the point that I'm not like out there. I don't need to see people in order to like not go insane. So not much is, and I don't have kids or like really anyone who depends on me for anything. So not much has really changed in my life. The dating game has suffered quite a hit, but <laughs> I think it's going to be okay. Other than the dating game, you're like, coronavirus, who? What? There's, yeah. there's something going on? 
Yeah, I mean, just obviously I'm very mindful of it. I don't, I definitely don't do as much as I used to because I, I have this thing. I really like to go out to eat alone <laughs> for whatever reason. My roommate thinks it's the weirdest thing, but I love to go out and just have like a nice meal at a restaurant. And I'm perfectly fine to do that totally alone. But so obviously that hasn't been happening. I'm pretty sure they shut down the restaurants in North Carolina and bars and stuff. Yeah. And the only other activity, I guess, that has been hindered by that is I do like to go to the bars on the weekends, but we'll have to wait a little while for that. Yeah. As a parent going to the restaurant alone and just enjoying a meal in your own peace and quiet sounds kind of nice. <laughs> Yeah, I'm ahead of the curve on that. I have so many friends and stuff who, and I used to not be like this, but they just, they can't be alone. They hate being alone. And it seems like so many people now are also like that from what I've been seeing on Twitter and social media. They just can't stand the fact that now they're alone. And I'm like, dude, I love being alone. I can, I can totally chill alone. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Like I heard a podcast episode, I forget what it was recently, but they were talking about how being able to go to a restaurant and eat by yourself or like going out to a movie by yourself is actually like, not that it's healthy, but it's a sign of something healthy, you know, going on that you are able to do that. that you can be by yourself without freaking out. And yeah. A lot of people are now in the position where they have to, to do that. And a lot of people are freaking out. Yeah. The one thing that I have observed about myself, cause I'm also introverted as well. When you're told to not go out and be social, like you become very aware of how much you actually do go out and meet up with friends or, or just go to the restaurant or, or get out in a social setting, whether it's the bookstore or whatever. So I've been made very much aware of, of how much I actually do enjoy people, even though I consider myself an introvert. Oh, I'm the opposite. I really don't like people. So uh, <laughs> being in this, has it shown me anything except the fact that I'm super all right with just being at home and doing my thing? I mean, my wife is here and my niece and nephew are here and that's really all I need. So I'm good. Same. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad, glad you two are safe and doing good. We'll have to see how long we have to weather the storm. Hopefully, hopefully we can get it under control soon. Yeah. Oh, and there was one more thing about like the restaurants and stuff. So I don't know if they've just totally shut down where you guys are at, but so they closed the restaurants to the public here. So you can only get like, you know, takeout or delivery. So we had our anniversary, you know, we had a reservation at Ritz Chris for our anniversary and they called and said, sorry, but you're welcome to come and, you know, do a, a takeout order. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm doing that. Yeah, something like Ruth's Chris is not not quite as good after you take it home. Yeah, no, it's not. Like, part of the thing that I like is the fact, that, like, when they bring it out, like, when they bring the steak out and it's just sizzling in, like, the puddle of butter on the plate. You have to stop. <laughs> you have to stop. <laughs> oh, man. That's life-changing. That sounds so good. All right, so we wanted to talk a little bit about Static site generators. I've been dabbling for years, actually, with different static site generators. Recently, we started looking into maybe migrating code funds, marketing pages off of WordPress 
And when Eric and I were talking about it, I was like, yeah, I would do them in Gatsby because that's why I know the best, but I also think is a good choice for what we are kind of like the marketing pages we have are, we have a blog and just a few screens talking about, you know, what we offer basically for advertisers and publishers. So I was like, yeah, I think Gatsby would be a good case to use this. And he said, all right, have at it. And I had at it. And <laughs> I don't think my results were really, were truly appreciated at large. Wait, did, did you do a deep audit with Eric over those? Uh, no, because this morning we talked about maybe doing something completely different. So, yeah, I mean, that's not really a technical choice though, right? So I wouldn't say that, that moving in a different direction at this phase for code fund anyway, has anything to do with the technical merits of Gatsby. So I'd like to hear a bit more about your experience trying to componentize it, you know, using React and Storybook and things like that. What, what was your experience like? I had a lot of fun actually doing it. I decided that if Eric was going to let me go whole hog on it, then I was going to go whole hog on it. So I decided I wanted to do like a very deep dive into components. I mean, we've talked about components in the past, but I mean, since this is Gatsby is basically a React static site generator for those who don't know. And I wanted to go full on with the components. So I did and I had storybook in there so you could actually see the component get rendered and see the code for it. It was like a really cool environment that I had running there. And at one point I turned it into TypeScript and then I threw that branch away because I was like, if they they already hate me now, I'm not going to take it even farther with TypeScript in this project. But yeah, it's a good experience. Like I really like Gatsby. I've never, there have been times where I've used it in the past and didn't truly understand it. But as I've used it more and more, I get more and more close to there. It's kind of hard to describe because it's not something I've really ever experienced before, but it's basically a React static site generator where you can... It, at build time, it will build out all of your pages and it can it uses GraphQL to get that data. It's all very hand-wavy in my mind, but that's kind of what it is. Wait, so where does your data actually live for the static site? It depends on what you want to do, but typically you it lives in your like markdown. You can make it live in markdown or different files can source from different places. Like I'm trying to think of a good example. Like in your configurator, you can set like the site name and the title and certain things about it. And then in your views, you can actually pull data from that configuration using GraphQL to like put your title on the homepage, for instance. But you can also do that with the markdown. So what it will do is it uses uh, GraphQL and basically mark down pages in front matter to construct all your blog pages. So the GraphQL is running locally and it's essentially wrapping your markdown? In a sense, yeah. I think that's a good explanation. Like I said, I'm not... It's all very hand-wavy to me, that part. I've usually gotten by with just using templates that there's a the Gatsby ecosystem is very large and that's one of the reasons I like it like it's a very large flourishing ecosystem of plugins and templates and starters and people working on it so I usually find like a template I like and kind of run from there 
I haven't had to use much GraphQL, but the one nice thing is that it has this tool called Graphical, which if you've ever used GraphQL, you probably know about, but it's basically uh, GraphQL running in your browser that you can use to like build out your queries. So whenever I have had to use GraphQL, like not use the default that comes out of the box, then I can just pop into the Graphical and kind of build out my query. It's pretty nice. So one one observation I've got, and this is and take this with a grain of salt or whatever um, from a true, you know, I bleed Ruby, right? And so it, I understand the desire to move so many concerns to the client in terms of let's stand up GraphQL, let's give all the power to the JavaScript side and essentially push all the logic to the client. I can understand that. When you come from an environment of, say, you're in some enterprise corporate, you know, Java shop or something, and you, the the back end feature set as you want changes put in there moves, you know, extremely slow, and you want the agility, you want the control, and so you just move more and more things into the front end, and that that actually facilitates that. But in in a Ruby ecosystem where we retain that agility even on the back end. It, I don't know. It feels like a lot of unnecessary ceremony to me. It is a lot of unnecessary ceremony. Go ahead, Ron. And I think they can't be compared that easily, though, because in, I mean, and I haven't, disclaimer, I haven't used Gatsby or anything like that. But from what I understand, you're, it's not pushing the complexity to the front end so much as it's like pushing it to build time to statically generate the site, which, you know, that happens at build time. And then basically you have, you know, you have HTML files that, you know, and assets that delivered to the client and maybe a little bit of JavaScript, you know, for, you know, some behavioral stuff. But even though you're using like React components to build the page, that all gets done at build time and gets you know converted into the HTML and that's what gets delivered to the to the oh, yeah 100% but my observation is that a tool like Gatsby evolved after react became a thing right and and it was then those developers that were starting to experience the, the pain of like SEO issues and slow load times because you waited for the whole payload to come in and they're like well what if we just used all the same tool chain that we're already using for the other reasons that I stated earlier and just pre-compile all of our static assets on the server side. And then we're fast and we've resolved all those problems. I mean, that seems like how this has evolved. Is that not, is that an accurate portrayal of it? I would, I would say, yeah, probably. I think that's probably a good guess as to how it, you know, the, the thought process that led to it. And yeah, so I see what you're saying. Like basically or at least the thought that I would have in that case is then, you know, why not just server render your HTML like in Rails? Or use another, you know, any, any number of other static site generators out there, right? There's a ton of them. I mean, if you're going to choose a static site generator, I think, I mean, I'm off the top of my head, I can think of Jekyll, Gatsby. I guess you could call Next JS one. There's something called Nuxt. There's a few more that I can't think of right now, but a yeah, lot there's of one other- in Go. I can't remember the name of the the Go one right now off the top of my head. But we actually tried to use it at one point at CodeFun back way back when we started. And anyway, we abandoned it and then went to Jekyll. I mean, you know how many times we've kind of like 
churned on our tools. But yeah, I love a good tool churn. I, I don't know. I think if you're going to choose one, these, I mean, it's kind of potato potato at this point, but I think it largely depends on who you have available and what their expertise is. Like if you ask yeah, me which Jekyll site, I, it would take me a while. I've never built something in Jekyll, but I've built several things in Gatsby. So I think that's kind yeah, of exactly. like exactly what hammer are you familiar with? If your people are familiar with react, then Gatsby is, and that's the, the resources you're going to put on the, on the job. Then, then Gatsby seems like a very logical choice, right? Right. Which is funny because I don't know react really, but I could bust out like our entire marketing site redone in probably two or three days. So until you get those yeah, one off weird edge cases that WordPress handles for us today. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I looked around a lot. There's a lot of things that Gatsby can do that we're doing with WordPress. So I don't know. So, so I have, a, I have a question. If how, how easy is it then to build with Gatsby without knowing react? You say you don't really know that much react, but you can bust out sites. I, I thought that, uh, knowledge of React was kind of a, you know, a prerequisite for it. I mean, <laughs> this is kind of the way I've developed like my entire life. I don't, I don't know React, but I can build React sites <laughs> if that makes sense. Gotcha. Like, I'm, okay. I'm just good at piecing stuff together. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. the other thing is, there's so many resources and tutorials and starters out there that you don't really need to know anything to do it. The only thing you really need to actually figure out is how JSX works. Once you can figure that out, then I think you're kind of off the race. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know if it was like a thing where uh, the ecosystem was such that you could just import libraries, and you know, almost like a, like a WordPress type thing where you actually don't even need to touch like code or markup to, to, you know, to build the site. Now you're gonna have to touch a little bit, but you can get pretty far without touching anything, especially with these like starters. Cause I, I built this site and it was backed by Netlify CMS. So, which is a headless CMS, which is a whole other rabbit hole. But basically what it does is you make changes on this CMS that's hosted on the site and it, it kind of collects all the changes you're making and then it pushes them to GitHub and then GitHub like it, it, yeah, pushes it to like master on your GitHub branch or GitHub on your master branch. And then Netlify runs another build to like update the site with the new like changes that have been made to like the markdown and the assets and stuff. So I don't remember exactly where I was going with that, but it, it's a, it's a cool process. It's definitely something interesting to like just play with for a little while, but no, I don't think you really need I mean, you probably should learn React if you're going to do it, but I don't think it's necessary. You can get really far without knowing it. Interesting. So one thing that I found interesting in your, your approach with this was the, the opportunity to componentize things, which I know is something that you've wanted to do on the code fund code base for a while. How did that experience go? Because I remember looking at one of the examples that you sent over as you were working on this particular project, and it was it was a React component that was essentially made up of all other React components. So there was no recognizable HTML whatsoever in the example, which it feels odd, but I mean, that's the nature of React components, right? But so I guess my question is, 
how far did you take it? I mean, obviously a little pretty far. And mm-hmm. what lessons, what lessons did you pull out of it? I went through varying degrees of going too far with it. Ron and I were on, we did a podcast without you where I, I described to Ron my tendency to get a little bingy <laughs> with these types of things or just take it a little deeper than it needs to go, which is kind of what happened here. I wanted to use a component library to build this. I was building it with Tailwind and I wanted to use a component library and I I did a lot of research and I, I found some that I really liked, but I wanted to, I didn't want to use like just pull one in because I didn't want their styles and I didn't need all of their stuff. So I basically built my own inside of, you know, inside of the app. Um, and I used a lot of, I, I think the main library that I pulled information from or best, not, maybe not best practices, but just like patterns in general was, uh, oh man, I literally just forgot it. I'll think about, I'll remember the name and I'll stick it in the show notes, but but the thing with this component library is it's a very, very granular type of components. So if you guys ever heard of Mark Del Gleish, he's a, someone in the React community who works on a Playroom a bit. Nope, not me. Well, he's, yeah. got really, he's got really good memes. So you should check him out on Twitter. I'll, to, I'll put his uh, Twitter in the show notes. Oh, um, man, I'm always down for good memes. So yeah. Um, he is... He's got the best memes I've ever seen in the React community, hands down. I think that's actually what he may be known best for. But I listened to a podcast with him, and he was talking about the one area where components start to break down, or one area they can easily start to break down, is if you have spacing like on the component. So like if you have a card, if you have spacing like on the card that pushes out like margin. He's like, that's when things start to break down because all of a sudden now you have to think about that when you're trying to stick a card somewhere that not only is this card like, you know, X tall X or Y high, it also has like this margin that you have to take into account and, you know, other things that you just need to keep in mind. And his belief was that you should make spacing like itself a component, which is something I thought was incredibly smart because I've also wrestled with issues like that in the past where, you know, because you have margin on something, you can't really reuse it the way you'd like to. So I went down this very, very long, deep rabbit hole of basically trying to create components that could be used regardless of spacing concerns, regardless of, you know, this and that. And I actually did create spacing components and they went through several iterations, but one the area I basically ended on is having a a padding and a margin component. And you would basically wrap stuff in these components and they you could pass them props like top, right, left, bottom, y-axis, x-axis. And basically all that would do is take in, you know, whatever you send it and then apply like create like the tailwind class for it. So like if you have a margin component and you pass it a bottom prop with a value of four, it would just create a div with MB-4, which is what the tailwind class is for it. So I took it really far. I took it way too far. And I was kind of like saying, I, I, I don't hate it. I actually kind of like it. But I think in terms of like it being practical for use, like it's not as practical probably in terms of if I was the only one who ever touched the site, it would be fine. But 
you know, I'm sure Nate would hate to work on this <laughs> because like you said, there, well, there's no, it was designed for no HTML on the page. It's just only components. Well, I mean, yeah, now you're, now you're into a fully customized solution and to onboard team members into that, they're going to have to spend time going through all of the storybook documentation, which thankfully that makes it a little bit easier to see all those components, but still they're, their knowledge of existing HTML and how to structure a web page is kind of tossed out the window, right? It's like, okay, now you have to learn this new technology, this new, this new way of assembling these components to actually build this, this visual representation of our, of our business or whatever online. So it, it, it makes sense wanting to pull off some of those, some of those concerns like spacing out of the component, take some of the presentation out of the component, but at the same time, the component is also defining the, the, the markup structure and some of the other styling. So like, where do you draw the line? Yeah. And I have, I have line drawing issues. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I have a, I have a question. The spacing component, did it have any like functionality besides just adding, uh, CSS classes? I mean, is it any, would it have been any different than just wrapping your card component in its parent, like in a div with the classes? No, it would not have been any different, but it's not a component then, Ron. (laughs) Well, that's where, that's where you go a little overboard with the hammer, right? It's like everything's a nail. You've got, you've got this component hammer and everything's going to become a component. So yep. you have a, a component with one tag, one HTML tag in it. And so we've yep. added complexity to, to the situation for, for one tag. Well, I put a, a tweet that I jokingly tagged Eric in of what it kind of looks like. I also figured out the component library I was looking at. It's called Braid, Braid Design System. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes. But it's a very... Yeah, I like I said, I took it I took it too far, but it was kind of, if anything, just a experiment to see. You know, I've been talking about how much I wanted to go down this component rabbit hole for a while. This was kind of an opportunity to see, like, if I go down all the way, like, how is that going to feel? And yeah, it didn't. No, I think it's still yeah, feel think, great. That's well, that's good though to take it a little too far and then kind of tease out where the boundaries are, at least for you personally, right? Right. The uh, one interesting thing that I that I was thinking of as you were talking through this is it actually makes me really appreciate stimulus for essentially you know isolating all of the JavaScript behavior from the presentation. I think there's value in that, and that's something that you don't necessarily get with React. Like kind of blend the two concerns together. Which I'm I'm in this stage right now where I'm trying to build up a controller library, a stimulus controller library, with the hopes of also then following on the heels of that and building a view component, GitHub's view component, component library up, kind of similar to what you're doing, but keeping all of the JavaScript in stimulus and in two distinct separate projects. So I just keep layering these efforts on top of each other. I've yet, like, I haven't started the component library yet. I've been building up the controllers. So we'll see, we'll see how far I can take that in terms of success. But I was going to ask, because I know that you did work with some view component stuff and hooking that up to a storybook. Is that, is that accurate? Did you actually get that working? I had it working at one point. It's not working now. I'm not really sure why. I think 
some change, some recent change to view component, uh, which is the, we should probably mention is action view component. But since it's not going to be in Rails now, it's just going to be called view component. I think Ron and I talked about this in depth on episode four, I believe it's episode four. So yes, I did have it working. It's not working now. I probably just need to spend a little bit more time with it to get it reworking. You know, one thing that just occurred to me, we, we might want to define what Storybook is for our listeners, for anyone who may not have been exposed to that. Can you tell us, can you tell us about Storybook? Sure. I can tell you what Storybook is. Storybook is a, it, it's a way to build UI components in a faster manner. It's an open source tool for developing UI components in isolation for React, Vue, and Angular. And it, there's more than just React, Vue, and Angular, but those are the big ones. It just and makes it sounds them, like view component coming soon. Yeah, potentially. It basically just creates like a, a an area in your application that you can you can start it up with a specific command, and it runs on localhost like nine thousand or something like that. And it's basically just a, a library of all your components, and it lets you click on them and then view them, and you can add in add-ons to see like the code to see the prop types to see, you know, notes about it and all kinds of stuff. So I'll drop a link to the main page or storybook in the show notes, but it's it's a pretty cool tool if you've never looked at it. It, it kind of encapsulates everything I've been wanting in terms of just like able to like quickly view and look through like components in your application. Yeah, it's kind of like having a usable style guide where... This is yes. this is what a button looks like. You can then you just copy this code and put this button wherever you need it on the site. I'm curious exactly. if you if you used uh, Storybook in your last React position, Ron. No, this is actually the first time hearing about this. But I'm curious. So would this Andrew replace that feature that you added to where you can see all of the components? I think we were talking about yeah. it a couple episodes back. So this would essentially replace that. Yeah. I mean, this is basically like someone already did that. Gotcha. But in like a this is basically what I was creating kind of in a way. But it, it it's a really it's a really slick tool. Like I definitely recommend it. It kind of can be a pain to set up a little bit, but I think once you I, th- I think it's one of those things where once you get it set up, it's like set it and forget it. And it's it's pretty slick, I have to say. It's really it, the nice part about it is it lets you build your components in isolation. So when I was working on the new code fund marketing site, I I'd never actually like at the very end I started getting to the actual pages on the screen, but for a while I was only developing the components using Storybook and just visualizing them there and like tweaking the settings and seeing how they look with other components with them, things like that. Interesting. Is your is your view component work that you had like the the Rails, you know, the GitHub view component stuff. Is that did did you open source that? Did your storybook work with that? Well, someone already did it. Someone created this, but it doesn't work, and I was trying to fix it. But no, oh, okay, I don't, so you're like, I don't think I put it anywhere. Okay, we should drop that link into the show notes and see if we can get some attention on that. That because I think if we could do server rendered components that way, but see them in storybook, that would be really a huge milestone for for essentially componentizing your Rails apps with something other than partials. Right. Yeah. I actually, I had a commit to view component the other day. I'm pretty sure. 
Oh, nice. Congratulations. Yeah. I fixed their GitHub actions, which is the only thing I'm good for. <laughs> I can do that. I can, you got some CI that needs to be debugged. I am, I'm your man. I'll remember that. So you're, you're moving over to DevOps, which is good because I think we're going to be doing more and more just raw AWS stuff over at CodeFund here in the near future. Oh, yay. I can't wait. That sounds super exciting. <laughs> you going to get your certification? If you're talking to me, then <laughs> all I've got is a good joke on the other end of that. <laughs> Come on, you man. got certified, didn't you, Ron, with AWS? I started to, I was taking the classes and then I kind of switched jobs. So, okay. The classes were, were being provided by my former employer. So, ah, that's <laughs> where that went. Ah, but that doesn't mean that Andrew can get certified. I'm sure. Code yeah. Fund would love to provide the classes. I doubt that, actually. <laughs> but man, it's really, really fun. Uh, <laughs> you say yeah, that. I mean, actually, we need to save Andrew's cycle so that he can uh, ramp up with Django and Python and stuff. Oh, <laughs> don't want to spread him too thin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <sighs> My life is just sounding better and better. <laughs> Hey, and at least you're not going anywhere for the time being. So you've got plenty of time to ramp up. Yeah, that's right. I got plenty of time to ramp up on Python, AWS, Storybook, Gatsby, JavaScript. I probably need to learn JavaScript at some point. Um, Light work, man. Light work. (laughs) Speaking of that, like I've been... I'm right in the throes of trying to figure out how to bundle up that that, uh, stimulus controller library that I was talking about. Because we're trying to package it into a dis, like a, a distribution that you wouldn't necessarily need to have a web pro, webpack project already set up, like a typical Rails webpack project. Because these components are just raw stimulus components; they can be used independent of Rails. And anyway, we're we're fighting with webpack and taking a look at rollup now. And oh yeah, it's just an, a never-ending labyrinth of JavaScript tools to try to help you build. <laughs> things for the future, I guess. Yeah. I, I get a little frustrated just because all the tooling is unfamiliar and it's ever changing. And, and, but I think, I think we were almost there with, with roll up JS. Cool. Yeah. Did you get that kind of figured out last week or last weekend? You kind of wrote me in a little bit and I basically said I had no idea. Yeah. Well, you would, you had touched on roll up. Um, and, I kept beating my head on the wall with uh, with Webpack, and I couldn't seem to generate the distribution that was necessary. And anyway, some of a friend of ours, Julian, hopped in and, and also kind of explored Rollup and submitted a pull request. And it seems to be working. We still have a few more tests to to kind of kick the tires on it with before we actually release, but that will probably happen in the next day or two. Good old Julian. He is a wizard. Yeah, he's got a little more pain tolerance with with all those tools. It feels like the endless. It, it almost makes me long for the you know, you, before Rails hit the scene. I don't know how many folks remember the old Java days or even the .NET days, but especially Java. It was endless XML configurations, and you like your project would be like three times as much XML as it was actual Java code and. I feel like the modern JavaScript ecosystem for the build pipeline stuff is even worse than the old Java XML configuration days. Oh, man. Shots fired. 
Was that way back in the before time, Grandpa? <laughs> what, I, what's XML? When I was your age, we had to write XML configuration for everything. I had to write XML configuration for a like two-ton printer at my last job. That oh, sucked. Yeah. That sucked real bad. I had never seen XML before, and I never want to see it again. <laughs> yeah, see, in some respects, I would almost prefer to go back to it than the endless like labyrinth of configurations. Like everything's trying to like it, it, the best way to verbalize my thoughts on it is there was a tweet probably it's over a year old now, but it was from uh, Justin Searles who talked about JavaScripters have essentially like ostracized or, or pushed away like a whole class of developers from participating because of this desire to sate the need of like always being on the bleeding edge of, you know, the the things that browsers haven't even agreed to support yet. And so that's why we have this endless soup of JavaScript configuration, build pipeline tooling from Babel or Babel and all of its surrounding stuff there with Webpack, with Rollup. And there, the way you can customize and tune and configure it, is just endless. And every time you get stuck or try to go find an answer, everybody's got a slightly different solution for it and it never quite works for you. Like, yeah, it's just painful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Babel, Babel is just a labyrinth. I don't understand. So Nate, do you have anything else to talk about with your controller library? Yeah, I mean, right now we've got three controllers in there. We've got one that will essentially copy... Um, text out of text inputs or even divs or text areas. And then the other one is a prefetcher, a link prefetcher. So you can just attach some behavior to a link with a stimulus controller. And as the users hover over those links, it will prefetch it. And if you're using TurboLinks, it's actually designed to work with TurboLinks. It makes your site almost indistinguishable from, from a single page app, you know, and all the claims of performance and usability and, and, you know, being friendly to the user with really fast things. Essentially what it'll do is when the user hovers over the link, it turns it into a TurboLinks restoration visit. So when they actually click, it's it feels instantaneous. And the other one is an auto-suggest controller that uses data list to it's an HTML5 data list, but then it it actually makes it usable across browsers with standard behavior. And that's where we're at so far. I've got about three more controllers lined up to drop in there. I know there's some people that are contributing on the stimulus reflex, like our back channel for that are wanting to contribute a few controllers of their own. We just have to get it to where we can make it available to even you know everyone, not just Webpack projects. So we're close. We're close on that. And so keep an eye on that. That's actually at uh, Hopsoft, under, on GitHub under Hopsoft stimulus underscore controllers. And we will link that in the show notes. So you guys want to talk about testing and frameworks real quick? Oh, yes. Let's. I've been kind of excited about this. How how are you feeling about this, Ron? Oh, I I can't wait. Nate, <laughs> Nate, yeah. how so, do you feel yeah, about I, testing frameworks? Are tests, like, right? What are what are those? Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I tend to like my testing strategy and philosophy is the more low level something is, the more important it is to be tested. I actually worked with a guy one time that that was very I should say I worked for him that was very adamant about testing where we would test, we would go so far to test like the HTML structure that was in the DOM looking for attributes that were assigned, you know, is this input here and does it live inside of this other element type of tests? And 
it makes the your code bit if you go to that extreme, it makes it so difficult to refactor things because you're you're spending the majority of your time just updating your tests to deal with the refactor. And so there's a lot of times we would decide not to refactor anything because we didn't want to go rewrite the tests. Man, that's uh, that's pretty nutty, at least in in my opinion. I, I mean, unless for some reason it's absolutely critical that this input not only work but be inside this div inside this other thing, you know, if that's not super critical, then why are, why are we testing for it? That's my opinion, at least. Yeah. I would say the, as as something becomes more and more critical, it's a foundational piece of infrastructure for your system. The first thing I think about is pushing it into a library or a reusable, you know, library. If, it, if you can refactor it into that, and that actually forces some good technical boundaries around the, the implementation and forces you to really think about the interface that you're exposing, which makes it more testable. And once you've pushed it into a library, then go write your tests and, and write really robust tests around that. And then ideally, release it as a, as a gem and then slurp it in as a dependency. True. I like what phoenix has done in terms of like they have contexts which doesn't go that far but still adds a bit of those benefits to it where you break up your you know your different portions of your app into contexts that only communicate with each other through these interfaces and yeah it forces you to you know or at least it's supposed to cause you to you know really think about your interfaces and how basically a portion of your system, not just, you know, a module, you know, but anything that's related, you know, works together to accomplish something is kind of encapsulated in a context. And then the rest of your application is only going to interact with, you know, that mini ecosystem through that interface and yeah it you know it makes testing easier you can you know test against that interface and make sure everything is working and then you don't have to do the you know the crazy hey let's test every little you know every last line of code yeah anything that kind of forces you to think about like good separation of concerns teasing out where those uh, boundaries actually need to exist, which can you can do that inside of a monolith. That's one thing that is really interesting about uh, the Phoenix framework that provides some some of the tooling actually helps you facilitate that, but without going you know, all in on like a microservice architecture. Right. I'd say if you can't actually tease out those boundaries even in a Rails monolith, then you've got no business. Like if you can't think of how you would break apart your Rails monolith in reusable pieces that where you have good boundaries, like service boundaries between layers of architecture, then you have no business like pushing it to a microservice architecture until you can do that. Right. Oh man, there's a sound clip. <laughs> so Nate, you like R spec, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> what? 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 Bro, I heard you like RSpec. <laughs> no, I, I fall in the 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 camp of you know, DHH has this famous tweet from back in the day when he was like questioning the value of tests and all this stuff. 
where he said that our spec actually kind of offends his sensibilities. And I, I, I tend to fall in that camp. It's interesting because I have worked with people that have used our spec, especially beginners that have said that they actually found it more usable than just doing simple asserts and things like that. For some reason, it made the code more understandable to them. So I am empathetic to that, but yeah, I will never choose our spec myself for a new greenfield project. I, my, my thoughts on tests are, I want my code in the test to look as similar to the code in the app as possible. Like I don't want to use uh, DSLs and, you know, syntax that doesn't look or reflect something similar to what I've got in my app. And at the end of the day, tests, you think about what a test is doing. All you're doing is executing some code saying, I expect this output after that code runs. Did I get the expected output? And assert by itself essentially accomplishes that. So I don't need fancy expectation syntax or, or like, there's not a whole lot of ceremony I need around that. Assert all the things. Yeah, I've, I want to make very clear what you just said in case it wasn't clear. Nate's saying that he only uses assert when he writes tests. No assert equal, no reject, no assert not, nothing. Just assert. Or refute. Refute's acceptable too. No, Nate, I've seen you use assert and do not equal. <laughs> but, oh man, that was it, jarring for me. It is true. I've seen it. Yeah, no, I so... Everyone should go through, this is my, take this with a grain of salt as well, but I think everyone should go through the exercise, kind of like what you did with the component stuff earlier, Andrew, where you go through the exercise and create your own testing library and then use it to test something. And you'll start to understand some of the concerns of the internals of a, of a test suite and why test suites are built the way they are. One of the reasons we have things like assert equal as a helper method in test suites is to essentially fail the test, but be able to fail it with enough information to say, well, the left-hand side was this, but I expected it to be this thing on the right-hand side or vice versa, however you want to build your test suite. But at the end of the day, when your test fails, even if you're emitting that helpful information, nine times out of 10, you're going to need to put a debug statement in there and get more context around the test failure. So if you have to go back and do that anyway, what use is, is it to emit the, the more helpful error message. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's helpful. You, you know, it would be super helpful if the test suite just dropped you into a price session every time an assert failed. Yeah, that, that would be really helpful. It'd be uh, clever if somebody offered something like that in a test suite. So it would be pretty clever, huh? <laughs> super, super yeah. clever. Yeah. No, for, okay. So Ron's alluding to a test suite that I wrote following the same type of exercise that I just described. Uh, it's called Pry Test. It originally started as micro test because I wanted to demonstrate that you can, you don't need a lot of code to actually create a test suite, especially if you think about the core essentials of what a test suite should provide. It's execute this code, did the code run successfully, and then surface that information up in some helpful or useful way. And so I created, uh, try test so that I didn't have to see the failure and then go, go to the failing test file, put in a debug statement, and then rerun the test and hit the pry or whatever my debugger is at the time. And so pry test will, will hit the failure and just put you in a pry session immediately on the fail. 
and you already have all the context you need to address the, the failing test right there. Actually, I use it to test all of my other gyms for the most part. So I dog food it there. But yeah, it's not something that I really promote and advocate that other people should, you know, adopt in their projects. But if you go and implement a test suite like that, you will start to understand how slippery of a slope it is. Because as soon as you add the, the capability to do an assert equal to provide a helpful message, then the next step is, okay, what do I put on next? Because now that I've got that infrastructure in place, I could add this other helpful method or this other type of method that looks for this specific type of condition. And then you start with all these assert underscore whatever methods in there and you and you start to build on that, but you never pause long enough to stop and say, okay, this is all doable, but should I actually be doing this? And that's how I think we end up with very complex systems such as RSpec. And you also have a funny library called Grumpy Old Man. You want to tell us what that is real quick? Yeah. So because I'm such an advocate of assert and refute, and even Grumpy Old Man supports assert equal, believe it or not, if you want to do those sorts of things inside of an RSpec test suite, Grumpy Old Man will put asserts and refutes back into your RSpec uh, test suite for you. So you can use sensible asserts as opposed to expectation syntax. <laughs> that, wow, that is grumpy. Yeah, I, I apologize in advance. I know most of the Ruby community is the RSpec bandwagon, but yeah, I, I like things simple. This has kind of been a dunk on Nate, but it's actually not because if anything, your arguments and your persuasion and ideas around testing have kind of greatly informed my like perception about it too. Cause I was like, nah, yeah. Why do I need all this stuff? Like why, why would I slap something on top of mini tests or why isn't mini tests just good enough on its own? And I think after you very eloquently argued some of the points about it, I stopped using our spec for a lot of things. Cause I was like, you know, mini test really is just good enough and it comes out of the box and it's just simple. This goes to another thing like me lamenting about the JavaScript ecosystem and even even some of my pushback on Gatsby and those types of tools is simplicity. When you find that a particular technology that that is simple at its heart starts to grow to the point where you've got a full cottage industry around it and now you're doing full training sessions, having conferences, writing books, and people are making their livelihood just off of your one one side piece to the whole kind of technology umbrella, I guess, then then maybe that's a bit of a warning sign that maybe it's, you've taken it too far, especially if at its heart, it can be simple. Are you against people making livings? No, but it does feel a bit like make work programs to me. <laughs> you heard it here first. Nate Hopkins is against people uh, making livings. So. I'm, I'm for efficiency. I want the most efficient solution out there. And typically your efficiency in terms of less code less noise and that's going to lead to faster execution times. So people lament the, the fact that they've got these slow test suites and stuff. Well, maybe there's a reason. True that. I agree <laughs> on that note because sitting through painfully slow test suites, I'm like, why can't we just simplify this? Yeah. You know, having said all that, I, I, I think it's very important for experimentation to take place. People need to go off and, and kind of try these crazy ideas uh, because that's how we move technology and everything else forward. So 
not over here as a Luddite going, oh, assert is all you need. Don't do anything else. I, I encourage the experimentation, but then pause at some point and kind of reassess is, is the thing that I'm doing actually necessary? Yeah. Which is something that you've always been good about with me because I wanted to show you my, my Gatsby situation. And in the time where I was sitting there pausing and thinking about it to like explain it to you, I was like, wow, I really went overboard with this. But yeah, I think taking a moment to pause and just think about it is something we all could be doing more often and might lead to some simpler solutions. And maybe you don't need that tool or maybe you don't need to tack on that functionality. Maybe what you have is good enough or the simple option is just better. Yeah, I think a good example was that layered cache we introduced the code fund. Right. We, we could have solved that in a far more complex way, but we addressed, I mean, we, we hit the 80-20 rule. We did something very simple and it addressed 80% of the problem. Yeah. And if you aren't sure what we're talking about, then you can check out Remote Ruby episode 70, where Nate talks about the layered caching stuff that we did at CodeFund. Cool. So you guys have anything else you want to talk about? I think that's about it today. Yep. I'm good. Ron, are you going to check out that show oh. on uh, <laughs> FX about Lil Dicky? Yeah, uh, definitely. Definitely. Good. All right. I think we're ready to wrap this. Cool. Sounds Talk good. to you guys later. We'll see, see you. you later. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.